your Bibles and go to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. It's always a privilege to preach the Word of God. Um, I've said it before, but like young guys always love opportunities to preach. And so when Pastor texted and said, I have COVID, can you preach? Part of me was like, I'm so sorry you have COVID, but at the same time I was like, yes, haha, I can preach. Thank you, Pastor. So I'm thankful for the opportunity. Um, I don't take it lightly. Uh, the more I study scripture and the more I prepare for ministry, the more I realize how unworthy I am for ministry and how deep the sin goes in my own heart and how much I'm in need, as the rest of us are, in the grace of Christ that enables us for ministry. So I'm privileged to take the word to you guys today. First uh, Peter chapter 2 will be in verses 4 through 10 tonight. Verses 4 through 10. Let me read the text and then I'll pray. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Father, we ask that you would impress upon our hearts the weight of your holiness. Would by your spirit, would you work in our hearts to give us insight and understanding into this text? Would your holiness push into our lives and crush us under its weight so that we would only recognize that our only hope is through the blood of Christ and what he's done for us? Would we come to you desperate for your mercy to know that you are a God who freely gives mercy because that's who you are at your core. So Father, help us to walk away with an awe and a thankfulness in our hearts for what you've done. We praise you for who you are. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So let's start off by thinking about running. And I don't know why running came to mind as I was working through this, but it worked well for the illustration. I want to frame a couple thoughts with it. I'm not a runner by nature. In fact, I, I really dislike running and anything that has to do with it. But running is a way, is, is an is a exercise that people will do in order to pursue a goal. So a runner does not run merely for the sake of running. They run because they want to achieve something. They want to receive a goal. They want to make a mark and get somewhere. And so if you went to a marathon and you were to stop a runner who's running down the field, running down this track, and, and ask them, what are you doing? Well, they're going to say, like, well, I'm going for the finish line, right? I mean, that's kind of obvious. I'm going for the finish line. I want to complete the race. But a runner is only going to run and endure the race because he knows the goal that has been set before him. And because he deems that goal worthy enough of his endurance, he's willing to suffer the aches, the pains, the cramps, the difficulties to get to the end and claim the prize. And we get that, right? 
That, that, that makes sense. But I think there's another aspect of that that helps us understand what Peter's trying to say here. And that is a runner will only compete by the rules if he knows who he is. You see, because I, I don't think I'm a runner and I don't like running. And so I could walk up to the next marathon that goes through Altona, Iowa, and I could grab my bicycle and I could bike that marathon and I could cross the finish line, right? And that works. I crossed the finish line. I achieved the goal, but I forgot that I was a runner or I was at least supposed to be a runner. And the same thing goes here. We're only willing to be who we are supposed to be if we understand what God has called us to be. We are only willing to play by the rules in the Christian life and to endure the hardship that comes if we truly understand who we are to be as believers in this world. And that's what Peter's connecting in here. He's looking at some statements of who these believers are. Peter's writing to a group of believers that have been under the eve of persecution. There's difficulty coming upon them. They're facing opposition for being believers, champions of the gospel. These people, the culture around them was beginning to push back against the truths of scripture. They hated the gospel. And it wasn't quite at the point yet where there was martyrdom, where there was death happening, but it was near. And so they were losing things like their property. They were being shunned when they went out in public and they tried to use things that were freely available for all citizens of the empire there. They were being shunned, secluded, and ultimately just opposed because they sided with the gospel. And so Peter's writing to these people and throughout the whole first chapter, he's setting up this language of mercy and power. God has been so gracious to these believers, even in the face of their hardship, by giving them salvation. He's proven his power through the resurrection. He's proven his mercy through the death of Christ. And now, because of that, they are to live holy in light of what God has done for them. And so he unpacks that through the whole first chapter, and he finally gets to the second chapter, where here he begins a new section in his letter. He's calling these believers to look back and to remember who God has made them to be in Christ. He wants them to look back and see who are we to be and why does that give us significance. He wants them to look at these statements and to walk away with a confidence knowing that though they are shamed for Christ, though there will always be people who oppose the gospel, the ultimate confidence lies in the fact that they are a chosen people, that God has poured his mercy out on them regardless of what anyone else might say. That's what Peter wants these believers to take away from this text. And so as we look at this text, the, the thing we're going to see, the one idea that we walk away from this text is that God has made us his in order that we might glorify him. So God made us his in order that we might glorify him. But as we walk away from that, the, as, we, as we look at that, the question we want to ask is, who has God made us to be? Who has God intended us to be? After he's poured out all his mercy and his grace and he's saved us, who does he want us to be? And that's what Peter answers in this text. And he uses two images in this text that would be familiar to these readers. It draws on a lot of Old Testament imagery to paint a picture of holiness. He wants these believers to walk away knowing that God is holy and that he's poured out his grace on them so that they might be who he wants them to be.
So as we look at this text, we'll see two images. And the first one is in verses 4 through 8. God has made us to be a spiritual temple built upon Christ. God has made us a spiritual temple to be built upon Christ. Look at verse 4. It says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. So Peter opens this up by talking about the stone. It's a living stone. And he uses these words of chosen, precious. And that language is actually from a quotation that he has later in this, in this chapter, which we'll see in a few minutes. But he's using this imagery of a stone to begin his picture by laying a foundation for this spiritual temple. What is this temple built upon? And so Peter says, as you come to him, so previously, just back in verse 3, we see who that him is. It says, if indeed that you have tasted that, the Lord is good. As you come to him. And so this him that, that Peter has in his mind is Christ, our Lord. It is the merciful Savior who, who is there and waiting for us to come to him. He continues on and he calls this, this Christ a living stone. It's a stone, a, a building block and that and that language of stone already would for a jewish believer harken back to all these old testament prophecies of the cornerstone christ the stone and peter's going to show us that in some text later but he's showing that he's using that language of stone to show us that christ is the foundation that he builds the basis of this people that god is bringing into existence by his word He's showing us that this stone can be trusted even in the face of hardship. But do you guys notice a weird modifier on that? He says, a living stone. When's the last time you ever described a stone as living? Have you ever walked outside the church and said, that's some living concrete right there, right? That's kind of an like, odd description to use. Peter's using that language to call our minds back to chapter 1 where he talked about the resurrection of Christ. This Christ who, by God's mercy, died for us has been raised to newness of life through the Spirit. He lives. And so Peter takes that and he attaches this to the stone, right? To show us that this is not merely a stone, not any normal foundation. It is Christ, the living stone, who has been resurrected and has defeated the power of sin, who has overcome the opposition of the sinners, of the, believer, of the people who opposed him. He has overcome that. And so he is a living stone. But note what this living stone, what else, how else this stone is described. It says he was rejected by men. And we can think back to all the gospel accounts where Jesus was mocked, where he was flogged with the whip, where even just in his public ministry, he was opposed by the Pharisees and by the other Jews. He was rejected. The people did not accept him as the Son of God. And so in the eyes of man, he was rejected. But there's a contrast. And it says, in the sight of God chosen and precious. This stone merely isn't just a foundation. And it's not even just a living stone. It is the Christ, the living Christ, who in the sight of God is his precious son, who God looks at and says, he is mine. 
He not only says he's mine, he, he chooses him. He says that he is precious to him, that he is worthy. And Peter says, as you come to this stone, as you come to this Christ, you are coming not just merely to a stone, not merely just to a man who once lived and had morality, but to a, a God-man who died and rose again and has power over even all opposition that could ever come at these believers. So as he sets that picture in verse 5, we get to the main idea of this passage. And in verse 5 it says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So now he just takes this one living stone that he said in the beginning of the sentence, living stone, singular, and now look at verse 5, he says, living stones, plural. He just took the imagery of Christ being the living stone, and he took it and he applied it to the believer and said, you are living stones. He said, you, like Christ, are being built up as living stones. And automatically that imports everything we just talked about Christ. These people are rejected by men. And because they're associated with Christ, they're being rejected by men. But yet, in the sight of God, on the merit of Christ, they are chosen and precious to God. They are worthy in the sight of God, not for anything that they have done, but because they are in Christ, because they have sided with Christ himself. So they are being built up. This is passive. This is something that's happening to these believers. It's not merely just something they're doing. It's something that's being done to them. And we would understand this as God. You are being built up. You are being made into something. A house wouldn't step up after it's built and say, I built myself. It would say, oh, I, I was built by something, right? It was something that was done to me. And even though that's kind of silly language, we would use that in description of the church. The church does not build itself. It's divinely built by God, the designer builder. He, putting stone upon stone, brick upon brick, builds his building into a dwelling place where he lives. And he builds it out of his stones. Us, believers, we are living stones being built stone upon stone into a, a house where God himself dwells. The language of spiritual house and priesthood and spiritual sacrifices would, would take a reader of the text immediately back to the, to the first five books of the Bible, right? To think about the law, to think about the temple, to think about God revealing himself to these people. And as we know, the temple was where God dwelt. This is where God lived. He was contained first in a tabernacle and eventually into a temple that David built. And he would dwell there. He was confined into a space. This is where he dwelt. And though we know God is omnipresent, his presence to his chosen people was in one location. But Peter takes the language of house, of sacrifice, of priesthood, and he says, you are being built up as a spiritual house. 
So now suddenly he's taking this language of God dwelling with you, God dwelling with us, and he's taking that and he's saying, each of these stones is being built up into a place where God, where I can dwell among my people. And we know that he does that through the Spirit. And we see that because he uses the word spiritual. And though he doesn't directly reference the Spirit, we understand that these things are happening by the Spirit of God, put inside of us as believers, where God himself dwells among us. And as his people come together in the church, they form the dwelling place of God. And so no longer does God dwell in mere temples and and buildings where he's confined to spaces. Now he dwells among all through his people. And that's what Peter's saying here. He's saying God is building you up even though you're being opposed and torn down by the people around you who oppose the gospel. You can't be stopped because God is building you up. And no one can stop your Lord. That's what he's saying. That's the encouragement to these believers. He says there to be or a holy priesthood or for a holy priesthood. And then he gives a purpose here. He says it's to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So this This building process that Jesus is doing to build up his people into the image of who he is to be. That this this process of building isn't just for the sake of having a place to dwell. God is doing this because he wants these believers to honor and praise him by offering sacrifices. And we already understand that the sacrifices in the Old Testament never saved them. It was always a picture of the atonement that was coming in the Lamb of God, that Christ was coming. And so those Old Testament sacrifices pointed forward to that. But those weren't the only type of sacrifices in the Old Testament. There were also the sacrifices of praise to God for who he was. They would offer incense and and sweet smells that were pleasing to God as a praise, as a gratitude to him for what he did. And most likely, that's what Peter has in mind when he says spiritual sacrifice, to offer praise and thanksgiving to our God who has redeemed us from our sin by his mercy and has given us new life so that we might be his people. That's the language. That's what, that's what Peter is unpacking here. But, the, but spiritual sacrifices doesn't need to call into mind some sort of like ghostly sacrifice. Like we're not offering these ethereal, like weird sacrifices to God. Spiritual just calls to mind again, like we said earlier, the spirit. The Spirit of God dwelling in us as believers. And when we walk in the Spirit, anything that we do, empowered by the Spirit of God, submitted to His will, becomes a spiritual sacrifice that overflows and blesses the body of Christ and exalts our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That is what God is doing. And that's what He intends us to do as his spiritual temple. But something that was interesting that stood out to me was this last phrase where it says we're we're to offer spiritual sacrifices and he says that these spiritual sacrifices are acceptable to God. Then he says through Jesus Christ. So no longer, so, so if we think about it, even our best work for God still condemns us to hell. 
Because you and I are so thoroughly tainted with sin that even our best service, our best sacrifice for someone else, our, our kind words of encouragement to someone, our, our faithful service in a ministry at church, even those things are still tainted by the rebellion of our own heart. And we are divine, we are so desperately in need of a sacrifice that would atone for even our good works. And so our spiritual sacrifices aren't immediately directed to God. They go through Jesus Christ, who has appeased the Father's wrath. And now he takes our sacrifices, and he takes them, and he mediates them to God so that they're pleasing to him. And so our best effort and our worst effort can never change our status before God because Christ stands there faithfully, mercifully mediating our good works to God himself. So that in the end, all glory and praise goes to Christ who has redeemed us and who has given us life. Peter continues on and he, he gives a couple Old Testament passages that support this idea. In verse 6, he says, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. A little bit later in verse 7, he says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. These are quotations from Isaiah and from the Psalms. We don't have time to unpack all the context of what was going on in those passages. But what, what Peter was getting at is the fact that in each of these contexts, there was someone who was opposing God's way of salvation. But in every one of those scenarios, God was faithful to promise success, that he would not be thwarted, but that he would accomplish his good purpose. So Peter looks at those and he, and he quotes them to, to bring us to bring to mind that this Christ who has come is here and he's accomplished what he came to do. And because of that, not only just merely is God's plan not just prophecy anymore, it has been confirmed in the fact that Christ has come, died, and rose again. We can have confidence because he this prophesied stone has come and has laid a foundation that he will succeed and those who come to him will not be put to shame. There's, there's a contrast here. In verses 7 and 8, we see a contrast between those who believe and those who don't believe. For those who come to Christ, who come to the living stone, they're given honor. They're given, they're given confidence. They're given a way to live in such a way where they're not fearful. They're given a confidence that Christ and God is on their side. But on the other hand, we see those who reject this, who disobey the gospel, who reject and live in unbelief, are doomed for destruction. And so in a sense, Christ becomes a dividing stone. He's set down, and when you encounter him, you cannot simply have a third option. You can't say, well, I'll think about it later. Christ becomes something, someone, who it's either I will follow or I will reject. And that is Christ to the world around us. And we as believers have known him and we have believed him. And now we have that honor. But for those who reject this Christ, only, only is found destruction and doom for them. 
As one, as one reader or as one writer said, we must either build upon him or be dashed against him. This is our Christ who has come, and he invites us to come to him. So what does that mean for us today? And, and simply put, we are to serve God through Christ by the Spirit. But how are we to do that? What does it look like to offer those spiritual sacrifices to God? And so we begin serving by simply by just turning to the hope of Christ in hardship. It's verse 4, right? As you come to him, coming to him. That language of going to Christ when hardship comes is the first step to serving him. When opposition comes up, right? It might be the little things where it's just, it's the battle of the bedsheets in the morning, right? Like trying to get up and like, oh my goodness, it's hard to wake up today and go do the God-given responsibilities that have been given to me to do, right? Like sometimes it's hard. That's the opposition, other times, it's the opposition of people who do reject the gospel. And it's that faithful gospel witness at work that keeps getting rejected and pushed off. Those are the oppositions that Christ gives to us. And he says, come, come to me. I will not reject you. I will take you in. I will accept you because I am a merciful Savior. And I will not be thwarted by those who oppose me. This is the God that invites us in our weakness and in our, in our times when we are struggling and it's hard to walk through life and we're facing struggles and trials. He says, come. He invites us in and he says to come. We also serve God by gathering together with the church. And so we are an expression of the spiritual temple of God, right? We're not the only church out there, but we're a church that God has made us to be and we are a spiritual temple of God and this text brings to us an importance to each one of us because in in this in here he does not simply just call the believers stones that are loosely thrown about off to live their lives independently he says you're being built up into a spiritual house so this gives us an importance a picture of of togetherness, of a unity, of a corporate place where we come together and each stone, each believer is an integral part of what God is doing in his church. If you think about it, and you bear with the imagery, our, our physical presence with each other brings the very presence of God to them. And we can say that because the Spirit of God dwells within us. And as we gather together as the body of Christ, we bring the dwelling place of God together. And suddenly we see in vast and, and, and amazing ways that God is here and he is truly with us as we see him at work in the lives of our brothers and sisters around us. So your ministry, our ministries at church become a very important part. Whether it's sound booth, right, or Sunday school. Maybe it's simply just attending church and being there to hear the word of God. All those things become divine opportunities for service because God dwells in us through his spirit. And so we have an importance. We have a worthiness because God is here with us. So we've seen that God is, crea is creating us and to be a spiritual temple. He wants us to be his dwelling place, and he's accomplished that. 
But the other imagery, the other image that Peter draws to mind here is that God has made us a priesthood by his mercy. He has, God has made us a priesthood by his mercy. We see this in the last two verses, 9 and 10. Verse 9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So those who come to Christ are being called out as God's people in order to tell of his mercy. The language here, you see four modifiers used. He says chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, a people for his own possession. Those four things are seen back in the Old Testament. If you want to hop back there, I'm just going to read two verses in Exodus 19. If not, that's fine. I'll just read them out loud. Exodus 19, and I'm just going to read verses 5 and 6. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And so that language there is what Peter's hearkening back to. He's going back to when, when God gave the law to Israel, and he began to formally make them his people. And he's taking that language, and he's applying it to the church today. And he's not saying that the church is Israel, right? But what he's saying is that the church, like Israel, is now part of God's people that they now have the favor of God bestowed upon them through Christ. And so that now they stand in confidence, no longer opposed by the world around them, but consecrated and set aside for God's purpose. Each one of these terms here, chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, a people for his own possession, imply the idea of holiness and also of representation. So first, holiness. God has, has used these terms. God has made us, the church, to be holy, to be set apart for him and him alone. We are to be a representation of God to the world around us. And the only way he's going to do that is if he draws out a people that are his own, a people that are for his possession, not just simply another people floating around in the world, going off aimlessly about their lives, but a people that God has divinely called to be his. And though God owns all things, and though he owns everything, he has specifically chosen these people, the people in the church, to be holy, to be a treasured possession for his purpose. But the language that's also used here is priesthood, right? And so that shows representation. The priesthood was to represent God, to be the mediators between mere man and the divine God himself. And they stood at the crossroads of those two beings, between God himself and between small man. And they stood there and they were the mediators between God and man. But now that's been abolished and that's been fulfilled in Christ, right? And now he stands as our mediator between God and ourselves. And we all come to him as a priesthood. Each of us priests ourselves coming to God himself face to face in the person of Jesus Christ. And so now we come to him and we know him. But that means we also represent him. And so we are called and given the task of representing God well in this world. 
No longer are we to live our lives idly for ourselves, pursuing our passions and our agenda for our lives. He's given us a divine high calling that transcends anything else that we could ever imagine in this world to be representatives of God himself. And through Jesus Christ, we now have the opportunity to present to the world our Savior and our holy God. So these two ideas of holiness and representation show up in the language that Peter uses here. And he encourages them with those callbacks to the Old Testament. But note, again, there's another purpose here. And at the end of verse 9, it says, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The purpose of this chosen people is that they might, as one commentator says, publish abroad God's excellencies to know his glory in a way that would have never been seen if God had never chosen this people to make his mercy known to the nations so that they might see that there is a God who loves and who cares. And though he is holy, he has stooped down to the earth to give life to people who need it. This is what Peter is saying. You've been chosen to proclaim, to publish abroad, to call to attention the excellent, the glorious character of God. A God who took you out of the darkness and the depths of your own sin. A God who took us out of the mere sin that we lived in and the wickedness that we were enslaved to and brought us into the light, the glorious light of the glory of God where we now live for his glory and now we have new life and where we have his righteousness and his mercy poured out to us in the person of Christ. This is what Peter's saying. You no longer have to live for yourselves. You're freed from that. You can now represent God and live for him well because he saved you. Because he took you away from the darkness and he brought you into the light. And because of that, he intends for us to proclaim that God to the world around us. This is what God is doing. He takes mere unworthy people. And as it says in verse 10, he pours out mercy on them so that they might represent God and make his glory known to the world around us. Our God has been so merciful and gracious to us. Verse 10 says, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is language from the book of Hosea. And if you're familiar at all with that book, that's a book about, about Hosea. Surprise but also about Hosea and the task he was given to show the steadfast love of God. And he was commanded to marry an unfaithful wife. And he did that to create this picture of God and his people Israel, loving them despite the fact that they turned again and again and again away from him and, they, and, and forsook God himself to his face and continued in their perverted perversion and sin. So that language brings to us, that reminder of Hosea brings to us a reminder that God's steadfast love to us was never deserved. But because of his faithfulness, his tender care for each one of us, he's been so patient and kind 
to pour out his mercy and to make us a people that represent him. God's mercy has been so good to us. And so we're to praise God for that mercy. But how do we do that? How do we publish abroad his mercy? How do we make his name known through the earth? And it really starts first by remembering what he has done for us. It's what the text calls us to do. There's no imperatives in this text. There's no commands given to us. It's simply who we are. So we start by remembering. If we really want to be a people who call forth the greatness of our God, we must first allow our hearts to be impressed with the weight of his glory. As we look at this, we see a God who's been merciful. As we look in the previous section, we see a God who's been powerful, who's been holy, and who is holy. And God is not merely a God who does merciful things. He is a God of mercy. It's who he is to his core. He's not merely a God who does holy things. He's a God who is holy. That is who he is. He exists as the Holy One. And as we meditate upon this God, as we take the time to slow down, to read the Word of God, to talk to God, to pray his word back to him, to be with believers who sharpen us and push us towards the character of that holy God, we begin to feel the weight of his glory impressed upon our hearts. And that weight stirs our hearts to understand the greatness of his mercy, of his power, of his holiness, of his kindness towards us. So as we're in the word, as we pray the word, as we be with believers, those things are used by our God to stir our hearts so that we would love this God who is greater. It's like what Jordan talked about today. We always have our affections set upon something. So are our affections being trained? Are they being drawn and stirred into this love for who God is? And the only way we're going to ever see that happen in our lives is each of us is faithful to read and pray the word of God. But we also praise God. And I'd say this is the application for these believers here. We praise God by sharing his gospel with other people. So these believers lived in the midst of opposition to Christ, right? They were opposed by, by a culture that hated the gospel. But those same people that opposed them were the people who needed the life-giving grace of the gospel. They needed the compassion of Christ to be shown to them so that they might love him, so that they might be redeemed and, and saved from their sins. So as we are faithful to read his word and let the glory of God impress our hearts and we pray that God would show us his glory, that he would show us his mercy, as we do that, our hearts become inflamed with the greatness of our God. Our hearts are stirred to pray prayers like Paul did in Ephesians 3, right? So that we would have the strength by the Spirit to even comprehend the fathomless love of Christ. Our hearts want to know this great God. And as our hearts become inflamed with that, as you know, we, be, we joyfully declare the gospel. And for me, right, it's, it's, as an engaged man, like it's easy to talk about my fiance, right? Because I love her. I, I can do that. You don't have to do too much to get me to talk about her. You can poke and prod me a couple times and we'll finally get to something about a wedding detail and how gracious Lydia has been to me in doing that, right? So it's, it's easy to talk about what we love. 
So if we want to start to share the gospel, maybe we start by stopping and meditating on our God, fueling our hearts to be inflamed with a passion for our God so that his name might be known among the nations. Uh, J.I. Packer says this, What is needed is this, that we who would speak for Christ should pray constantly that God will put and keep in our hearts a sense of his greatness and glory, of the joy of fellowship with him, and of the dreadfulness of spending time in eternity without him. And then that God will enable us to speak honestly, straightforwardly, and just as we feel about these matters. So if we pray for our God to impress, to impress the weight of his holiness on our hearts, it will not be a struggle to talk to others. We will just speak honestly about really how we feel about our God. So as we look at the text and we back up then, we see that by the blood of Christ, God has purchased a people for his own possession. He wants his mercy known. And so he is accomplishing that by first showing us that mercy. As we taste of that mercy, it inflames our hearts to call attention to his purpose and glory. And here, I would assume all of us are believers here. But if for some reason you have never turned to Christ for salvation, may this text stir your heart to turn to him, the God who gives grace and mercy, the God who is holy yet has stooped down to give mercy. He invites you to share his righteousness and the honor, and he extends that mercy to you. He will make you a part of his people if you turn with faith. But for those of us who are in Christ, those of us who have come to him and are coming to him, he gives honor and glory. So for those who reject, only shame and destruction remain. And so for us, that question stands, are we coming to him? Are we coming to our merciful Savior? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your mercy in the person of Christ. Thank you so much for loving us even when we did not deserve it. Would you give ourselves in our hearts the weight of your presence, to know the Spirit and that he dwells within us, to know your word and to pray and to come to you in dependence, knowing that we must know you. So give us, Father, the grace of knowing you, and may you by that make your gospel known throughout Altoona and throughout the world. Thank you, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.